following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, we're going to continue today in our Curious series. Uh, Originally sketching this series out, uh, I thought we may have been done by now, but uh, as sometimes happens, we get moving through it and people think of more questions, they get more inquiries, and uh, we have some flexibility on when we jump into the next series. So uh, there's, some, there's some really good, good questions coming in, important ones that I know are exactly the kind of questions we're looking to address with this series. It's the things that really are sometimes roadblocks or hurdles that people are trying to jump over to understand what is, it, what is a biblical way to think about this. And so we're going to just continue working on them, and uh, I'm thankful we had the opportunity to do it. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> as hopefully most of you know, we sent an email out this week giving you the question ahead of time because... For those of you with teenagers in here or potential trauma around the topic, we wanted you to have a heads up uh, and the right to pivot accordingly if you felt that was appropriate. Uh, so I hope if that's you, you did get the email. If you didn't see the email, we may not have your email, so hook us up with that, okay? Because uh, we're not spammy and we try to only send things that are important pieces of information or communication that you need to have. So maybe we don't have your email. If that's the case and you'd like to hear from us uh, and know what's going on, then give us your email. Um, it may be that we have your email, but you don't read the emails that we send you. Uh, if that's the case, then please start doing that because we only try to send important stuff, okay? We don't spam you. Uh, I don't have a weekly newsletter just sharing my thoughts, filling your inbox, uh, you know, and I don't know, maybe now that I've said that, someone's going to request it, but you're going to have a lot of work to do to convince me about that. So um, the other option is possibly that, you know, it, it hit your junk folder. You know, sometimes if you don't open something from a certain sender enough times, uh, that email filter decides you don't want to read it. So if that's the case, if it's going to your junk mail, check that and then inform your email junk filter to quit working for the devil and uh, put our emails in your inbox, Okay. Because uh, we're not spamming you. Did I, did I make that really clear? Okay, cool. That's, I really wanted to drive that home. Man, did someone lower this pulpit? I'm not going to fool with it because it might just do crazy stuff, but I'm going to work with it. Someone thought could think that was funny. Someone in here beforehand like, <laughs> let's see if he can read this. I can see that happening. Uh, okay, so the question this week is, are there any rules for sex inside of marriage, okay? <clears throat> I thought it might be about that quiet when I said what the question was out loud. Um, <laughs> so, and I tried, but I could not think of a, a clear way to work through this, so if the ushers could get me those puppets that I had in the back. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's no puppets, man. <laughs> There's no puppets. As, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to primarily stay in the realm of broader principles today because 
the number of individual applications and scenarios is so great. If, if we were to try to venture down that path and cover it all, I mean, we'd be here till next Sunday. Okay, so we have to deal with this in the realm of principle, and I'll probably say this multiple times as we move forward. If, if it isn't clear by the end of this how these broader principles work in the particular things you're trying to navigate, I want you to know this conversation can continue, okay? The elders and leaders here want to be able, want you to know you are able to, to reach out for help in these things. And that can be sometimes weird, and maybe you never even thought that that was a place you could go, but hopefully as we move through this, you'll, you'll see why I'm saying that, okay? Uh, I, I am going to address some specifics raised by the question asker, and those are based on conversations they've had with fellow believers trying to figure some of this out. And I want to affirm the fact, I'm thankful that these conversations are happening within the body because it isn't just leaders or elders that know what the Bible says about these things. Um, I think it's, I would encourage you towards the practice of having people that you're close to within the body of Christ who also have a Bible in their hand, who also, when trying to navigate these things, they're going to start with the question of what is a biblical way to see this or think about this? And that can be really helpful to have those kind of folks with you, close friends, trusted friends that you can, you can work through these things with. So the more that's happening, uh, the better off we are, okay? Now, I, I do want to say that I know for some, this may seem like an out-of-bounds topic for a Sunday morning, but if you just let me humbly submit this to you, the, the Bible addresses it, and people are wrestling with it, and I would much rather us look to God's Word for guidance together than have people out Googling and, and being exposed to all the egregious error available as it pertains to these things. Okay? Amen. Thank you. Um, for, for those who are, are currently unmarried, for all the reasons that might be the case, I just want to give you a word of encouragement quickly. I, I could see how, pretty easily, this may seem... <laughs> not to be particularly applicable to you, okay? But please consider that you may be married at some later date and, and having a biblical view of sex and marriage now could avoid a lot of heartache later. Or if not, maybe you're somebody that God has gifted for singleness and that's the path you're on. Uh, here's the thing, people have questions about these things. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, all Christ followers are called to be disciple makers. So being able to answer folks' questions through a scriptural lens or at least be able to point them in the right direction is important. And so um, I know oftentimes I preface things that are maybe seem laser-focused that way, but I, I'm never going to stop trying to cultivate the idea within this body of believers that when we come on Sundays... Um, the primary lens with which to view that shouldn't be, uh, I'm coming here to get for me. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, whoever said, mm-hmm, kind of over here. Where are the rest of you at? Right? Because we, we follow a, a Savior who poured out everything to have us, to serve us. And he was the highest, and he went the lowest, and we're somewhere in between. Right? And so sometimes... Acclimating yourself to the truth of God's word isn't just about that you feel it's particularly applicable to you in that specific season. Sometimes it has to do with growing in those things so you can serve others with that. Amen. Okay. 
All right. <clears throat> Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 together. And then we'll, we'll get to work. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Praise God for his word. Amen. All right, so what do we have here? Right off the bat, Paul says, so about the things you, you wrote, okay? So this is Paul in, in pastor mode responding to, okay, so Paul earlier had planted the church in Corinth. He was the, the founding pastor, think of it that way, uh, along with a, a team of other leaders. And so he was there, and, then, and now he's not. And so they're writing because they believe in Jesus now, and they, they want to do what Jesus wants them to do as it pertains to all parts of their life. They realize that, right, they've been bought with the cost of Christ's blood, so that means all of my life needs to be submitted to the Lord. But, but Paul, we have questions because we're not sure how that works itself out in some things. And so clearly they've got questions. And it's not surprising that the Corinthian uh, Christians had questions surrounding sex. Because if you know anything about ancient Corinth, uh, it, it was heavily influenced by the Greek pantheon of gods. Uh, some accounts have a temple to the goddess Aphrodite there, which was the kind of goddess of sex and lust and maybe what they would have called love, but not by a Christian perspective. Uh, it, it's, it's said by some accounts that that temple would have had a thousand ritual prostitutes in it. And so the worship of Aphrodite happened by people going and laying with these prostitutes in the temple. The point being, the Corinthian culture was confused <laughs> about sex and what its purpose is and what, what is beneficial when it comes to that, okay? And so you might be thinking, okay, wow, sure. Whoo, man, the Corinthians did need some help on that subject, but like, we're better than that now, right? Because we don't have a temple to Aphrodite. Well, if I could just submit this to you. Uh, this is one sociologist from a, a university in New Mexico estimates that $97 billion was spent on porn globally in 2020. $97 billion. And I know you watch the news and you hear billions and trillions thrown around, but the NFL, which is the highest grossing kind of sports ball organization, brings in about 15 or 16 million. Okay? And so the rest of the, think about how much money is in sports. So the rest are up under that. I mean, you could add a bunch of those together and still not touch what some estimates of how much money has been spent on porn on the planet in a year. Okay? What are you, why are you saying that? I don't think we're all that much better than the Corinthians. We may have moved from a temple to, to a tablet or a telephone, but we're not doing much better. There's a lot of confusion out here. There's a lot of issues around this that we don't have a biblical lens for, for sure, as, as kind of, if you consider kind of a, a global cultural perspective, the people of the world at this time, okay? And it's, I think it's, it makes more sense to think that way today because the globe and people are more interconnected than they ever have been, right? Sure, there's still 
differences in cultures and there's distinctions between the way different people around the world operate and how they think, but increasingly we're able to influence each other in the way we think through technology. I mean, most obviously the internet, right? So more and more we're, for good or bad, (laughs) kind of pushing into other people's and receiving from other people thought patterns, ideas, um, beliefs, okay? So before we get down into the details um, here, I want to pan out for kind of a wide-angle view first and answer this question. From a biblical perspective, what is sex? From a biblical perspective, what is sex? And I actually thought at this juncture about how I sometimes do, giving you guys a chance to kind of yell answers out loud. But then I thought better of it. And so we're not going to do that today. (laughs) Not on this one. I'm just going to tell you. I'm going to jump straight to the answer. Biblically speaking, sex is a gift from God. Specifically, it's a wedding gift from God to his children. It's a wedding gift from God to his children. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but it's verifiably true. The Christian sexual ethic is increasingly coming under fire from the broader culture, American culture, but global culture. Um, There are many voices claiming that it's archaic, restrictive, and even harmful. Okay? We need to know that. Um, And this... That happening, it stems from some unfortunately prominent beliefs that either God isn't real, so the Christian sexual ethic doesn't matter, or he, and then by extension his people, they they want to control others and stop them from enjoying life. There's a lot of people that think that's what God's about. Uh, And that couldn't be further from the truth. On both counts, God is real, and, and, and that idea, I believe there's ample evidence to you know, support the reasonableness of that claim. But um, as we also see revealed in his word, he's, he's not a father trying to keep us from joy and enjoyment. He's a father who wants us to have those things in the fullest measure possible. Amen. That is the, that is the biblical picture we're given of God. I know lots of people believe lots of things about him, but man, we gotta, we gotta look to what he's revealed about himself to paint the picture to form our beliefs, right? And that's a missing piece oftentimes. But that's why we're here today. Uh, <clears throat> so the problem from our perspective is it's not sex itself. It is sex removed from the benevolent boundary of covenant commitment that God established for it. Okay? That's the issue. That's the problem. What do I mean when I say that? I mean... Sex is a lot like fire in this way, okay? Fire in a fireplace is great. You can warm your hands by it. You can toast some marshmallows by it. You can have a jolly old time with the family around the fire if it's in the fireplace, right? But if the fire spills out of the fireplace, what do we have? We've got chaos, devastation, and destruction, Sex is like that. God put boundaries around it for a reason. It's meant, it's a good gift. It's meant for enjoyment. It's meant for procreation. But if you take it out of the boundaries, invariably, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, there, there's no other thing you can say about it once it's out of the boundaries to make it better. It will cause problems. 
it will lead to pain and devastation. There's reasons why God drew those lines, okay? <clears throat> and from Genesis, <clears throat> from Genesis to Song of Solomon, and I would say even also here in 1 Corinthians, we see that sex is not only permissible, but it's encouraged within covenant marriage. Okay? So, it, but, but if that, what we've said thus far, if that's, let's say, the perfect kind of metaphorical narrow way on how to think about this, there are for sure two wide metaphorical ditches on either side. So let's talk about that for a moment. If seeing, it, seeing sex is a gift from God, belonging within the benevolent boundaries that he has set because he wants us to have the most joy and enjoyment possible and doesn't want to see us ravaged by the effects of disobedience to him and sin, you know, all of that is, all of that is predicated on a, a base belief that you, you believe God is good and he loves you. We've got to start there. And some people I know are struggling with that. Some people are still trying to work that out. And we're here, we're going to be patient with that and walk with you and do everything we can to help you see. But, so I understand that, that you may not be there, but just know that's, that's where I'm coming from because I believe that's what the Bible teaches us and shows us about God's character. That he's a good, loving father and he wants good things for us. And when he asks us not to do something, it's because he's keeping us out of pain. When we disobey that, you get what you get, right? So... But he's merciful and kind and long-suffering and patient and, and will, will jump into the fire and help pull you out even when you snubbed your nose at him to go do it. Man, that's a good father. Always calling and drawing you back to him. The safe place of joy and beauty. Okay? So what are the two metaphorical ditches that I talked about? Well, the first is to see, see sex as God. This is... That may hit you in a way that it's, it's hard to understand in our context. If we, if we go back to the Corinthian context and we understand there was a temple to Aphrodite where people were, were literally sleeping with prostitutes and thought that that was a way to connect with the divine, it's like, oh yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that's, that's seeing sex as, as God or something to be worshipped. But to, to translate it to where we're at today, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to understand this is still a reality and a struggle. But that's because we need, to, we need to understand some basic things about human nature. First being that God created us as worshipers. You need to know that you're a worshiper. Well, I don't particularly feel like a worshiper. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to tell you <laughs> what you are from God's perspective. He made you. You are a worshiper. The question is not if you worship. The question is what you worship. Romans 1 makes this very clear. That our, our perennial problem as humans is that we get confused we get drawn into worshiping created things, worshiping gifts instead of the giver. Created things instead of the creator. And in this instance, it's, if, you, if you start to work from that framework, I think it can start to be very, or maybe more, easy to understand how we could erroneously treat sex as a god with an overemphasis. We also have to define worship a little bit, which Pastor Jordan did a a wonderful job a couple weeks ago working with us through that. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and see it. I don't want to unpack and redo everything he did, but it's sometimes we hear worship and we think, oh yeah, well, you know, temple sex with prostitutes, sure, I get that. Or we think about, you know, cultures with, with a pantheon of gods worshiping little totems and stuff. Or, or we think about what happens here when we're, we're singing together, but it's like, you know, you're like, hey man, 
I'm not, you know, I'm not bowing down. I'm not singing songs. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worshiping sex. I don't understand what you mean. Well, you've got to broaden your, your understanding of what worship is. Worship's a whole life thing. You're a worshiper. And so, so what do you worship? How do we figure it out? Well, what do you think about the most? What animates your thought life the most? What, do you, what, do you, what gets most of your attention, your affection? Where do your resources of time, talent, and treasure get focused? See, if we start to broaden that perspective of what worship is and how it applies to life, it, it becomes more and more clear how we could have an overemphasis, uh, a painful overemphasis on sex. We could, we could be inadvertently, and maybe even unintentionally, giving it worship, a gift, which is foolish. You should only worship the giver. The second ditch is seeing sex as gross, and there's a few ways that this can happen. Um, something we need to be very gentle about, especially for those of you navigating the complexities of what we're trying to work through today in your own marriage. There are people that have been sinned against sexually, and that shades and affects the way they view it, period. And we need to be patient, gentle, kind, and loving in the way we engage with folks dealing with a, a, maybe an off-kilter perspective about what sex is or what God's intentions are for it, but they're off-kilter perspectives because, of things, because they've been sinned against in that way. The only approach we have towards folks in that... Was that the Lord? I'm just kidding. Yes, Lord, I'm here. Uh, the, only, the only approach we have towards people like that, people with those particular struggles, is, is gentleness and kindness and trying to help them work through the difficulties that come along with being sinned against in that way in particular. The second way that this, this idea that sex is gross, this other ditch, can, can become a part of what affects our thinking and our beliefs on this is either through bad philosophy or bad doctrine, okay? And some, the interplay of those can, can be quite substantial. Um, early on, you had, uh, so you had, you know, as the church was first birthed, right? Think Book of Acts forward. You had Greek culture was prominent. You had Roman culture was prominent. And they had, they had philosophers. They had guys that, you know, people liked to hear them talk because they talked about deep things. And there were people trying to just, figure out the way human nature works and all that. And, and some of that, some of those insights and things they came up with are very valuable. But some, some of those philosophies, and I, so like the Stoics I have in mind in particular, high, high value on self-discipline. And that translated all the way to the point of, of seeing sex or sexual desire as part of kind of that undisciplined uh, animalistic part of human nature, and it should be it should be sequestered and shut down, and, and that that extended even into the way they understood how sex within marriage was supposed to work. There was early church fathers that that affected some of their thinking, along with poor poor doctrine in, in, in the way what the Bible warns about sexual temptation and sexual sin. There, there was an overrealization by them of what that was saying, along with the influence of these philosophers. And, and many times it, was, it had a lot to do with the fact that their, their personal experience was they had had their life ravaged by their own sinful temptations. So that kind of caused them to 
see one side of the coin very clearly, but maybe miss the others. There's accounts of early church fathers castrating themselves. There's accounts of early church fathers throwing themselves into thorn bushes when they felt sexually tempted to calm it down. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you've got a thorn bush nearby and you need to do that, I guess, but there's probably healthier ways um, for us to work through this, right? Um, praise God. I mean, I, I got to respect, on one level, I have to respect the intensity and their great care for wanting to live pure lives before the Lord, and in particular in, in the area of sexual purity. But um, that, what I'm saying is that can be over-realized. And you can end up with teachings like uh, e- even, even sex within marriage is, is somehow an evil thing and, and should only be tolerated for instances of procreation. And, and maybe where we're at today and maybe all the influences that, that you've had, you, you're like, what? People actually say that or think that, but what I need you to know is that's absolutely legitimate in terms of teaching that has gone on from the beginning of the church in certain veins, and it has affected large amounts of people and the way that they think about what sex is, what God's purpose for it is, and how it is supposed to work itself out, all of those things, in a marriage covenant. Okay? So, maybe you don't struggle with that at all, (laughs) Uh, and I would say probably the majority of people that I talk to today, if I present this kind of sex is God or sex is gross paradigm, and then I, I challenge them a little bit, you know, because most, most people, there's, a, there's, a, there's at least an initial temptation to not really want to examine yourself based on those terms and just say, oh, well, I think I'm good. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> you know, right? um, and when I push them a little bit and say, oh, okay, so you, you, see, you see sex exactly perfectly the same way Jesus does with, with 100% clarity and you don't have any like other influences working on you. You've, you've, in this, you are perfect in your conception of it. And so when I, sometimes when I push them a little bit on that, a lot of times they'll say, well, yeah, maybe I have a toe over in the, in the sex is God, like the overemphasis side of that thing, maybe, maybe just a little bit. Um, hallelujah. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We need to be honest. None of, us, none of us is hitting this perfect. None of us totally understands. I don't care if you could have preached everything I've preached up to this point because you've heard these concepts dealt with before. I'm telling you right now, I am preaching the concepts and I know in the practical everyday manifestation of these principles in my life, I'm not hitting it perfectly. I'm going to be relying upon God's grace to continue to try to find and stay on as much as possible that... <clears throat> narrow way of truth. And that's kind of, that's the reality of all of life. Amen? You guys don't like humility or what? What's going on? You better get to like it. (laughs) It's a pretty big deal. Amen. Okay, so that's kind of a quick broad view of sex from a a biblical perspective. So so what about the question, okay? Particularly, are there rules as it pertains to sex and marriage? Um, And the answer is a bit bit enigmatic. Um, sometimes they are. There aren't rules per se, uh, but there is one rule. And what do I mean by that? Well, first, let me call your attention to Hebrews 13, uh, verse 4. Don't try to turn there. Just write it down if you want to look at it later. But let me read this to you. It says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral 
Some translations there will say fornicators. I think that's a helpful distinction on kind of the point it's making. Uh, Judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. So marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Okay, so I think here we, we get a bit of instruction from silence on the way to think about this. Okay, Hebrews says here, the marriage bed is defiled by having sex with someone other than your spouse. But that's as far as the instruction goes. So what do we do with that? Well, you don't build doctrine from silence, but that's not the only verse we're going to talk about. We've already been in 1 Corinthians 7, and there's more to come. But this first point I'm trying to make to you is, if what God wanted to do was give us a list of you know, approved positions and lighting and apparel or lack thereof, uh, this would have been a good place to do it. And he didn't. Amen. And is that right or wrong? Okay. And, and, here's, and that's the thing. You might be saying, okay, well, he didn't say it there. Well, what I'm trying to tell you is we don't find any such list anywhere in Scripture. There isn't one. So what does that mean? Well, maybe, maybe that means God in his wisdom, like in lots of parts of life, left room for freedom and conscience. But freedom and conscience are always bound by one rule. Most of you know where I'm going. Uh, you will find no list like that in Scripture. So when, when people have come up with arbitrary rules, there was very influential theological movements, you know, 1,500 years ago and forward that, I mean, they got to the point where they were marking off days on the calendar and saying, okay, this is a sex is okay day, this is a not okay day. I mean, it got to the point where half the calendar was marked off. Where did you get that in here? Or when people have ideas that God has sanctioned positions, lighting levels, or, or outfits, it's like, well, man, I, will you show me that verse? I mean, I've, already, I've even looked back in the, like by the maps and the concordance. There's no, <laughs> there's no list, man. It's just not in here. I, you know, if it's, there, if it's there, I really want to see it, but it's just not, okay? So what do we do with that? What does that mean? So does that mean, does that mean anything goes? Well, I'm, I'm going to keep being enigmatic on purpose. Yes and, and no. The one rule that governs sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is the same rule that governs our interactions with every person on the planet. And that rule is the law of love. That rule is the law of love. And when it comes to all the Bible says about conscience and freedoms in Christ, we, whenever that's talked about, also, always with it comes this, this binding upon us to keep in mind the law of love and to apply it in every one of these instances. <clears throat> and I realize <laughs> that some of you may get tired of hearing me say this in different ways, but friends, I just, just here's the deal. One of my main missions on this earth is to help you learn how to run every single thing in your life through this grid. The grid of love. Why? Lots of reasons. I could, you know I could preach an entire side sermon right now on that idea, but just quickly, Jesus told us that all the law... Here, listen to these words. Jesus said, all the law and the prophets... 
Hang on. What two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on those two commandments. Paul said in Romans 13, 8, to owe no one anything but to love them, and in so doing, you will have fulfilled the whole law. This, this law of love, it, 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 does, it, it, makes it, it makes it very simple to know what the grid is that I should be running all of my questions through when it comes to the practice of faith and how that affects other people, but it's not always readily apparent what laying that grid or, or giving that, putting that restriction of the law of love into a certain subject is not always readily apparent how to apply that. That's part of what we're doing in God's word each week. And so it, it is going to come up a lot because it, it's, a, it's a summary statement of what God expects of us in all things. So we're going to take some time and in, in doing so and in getting into some detail, the hope is that not only is it maybe answering specific questions some of you have, but it's also continuing to condition us to be able to do this, apply the beautiful restrictions of the law of love to whatever it is we're trying to figure out. Amen. Okay. The, the assumption being <laughs> that if you're here today, especially if you saw the email, you care about approaching whatever it is in your life from a biblical perspective because you're convinced of God's love and goodness, at least to the degree that you can be at this point. We're all, there's always more to grow in that. So the law of love must govern our thoughts and our actions and our words. And yes, even, and, and I would say especially, the specifics around sex with our spouse. Okay? But as I said, with many things, it's not always obvious what this means practically. So I'm going to now address some specific things that came up when I talked with the person asking the question. Um, and, and maybe this, if this isn't clear by now, I want to say it really, really plainly. This subject should not be taboo among God's people, and it isn't here at Love City Church. So, if you need more help or guidance around these things, please know that the elders are here. We're available to help you. Uh, we're not going to be awkward or weird about it. Community group leaders, available to help you. If they get hemmed up and aren't sure, you know, because look, that's, what I'm saying is <laughs> there's a lot of particulars. There's a lot of potential particulars of ways that this could be difficult to navigate within each set of folks' marriage covenant, okay? There's all kinds of factors, influences and, and issues, potential struggles, misconceptions, misunderstandings, all these, there could be all kinds of ways that we need help navigating. And, and if we try to anticipate them all and say them all, like I said, good Lord, we could probably never stop. But we're committed to walking with you through it. And sometimes it may come down to, the Bible doesn't give us a hard, fast rule for how to, how to, figure that out, and we're going to have to just stand in faith and pray that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can discern our way through. But I want you to know, amen, I want you to know you don't have to feel like you're struggling in this alone, okay? Please hear that. Uh, so let's deal with our anchor text here, and we'll move out from there, um, because there's been a lot of confusion and harmful teaching, false teaching, uh, from these verses, okay? So, uh, we're focusing back in here on, on 1 Corinthians 7. 
It's only, it's only five verses. So now concerning the things about which you wrote, it's good for me not such a woman. So I told you, Paul's responding to questions they had. Okay, I think we, we understand that and why they had them. <laughs> All right. Uh, verse two, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Okay, what do we see here? We gotta, let's establish this principle. Sexual desire is not evil in and of itself, but it must be met within the boundaries of covenant marriage. That's what we see Paul laying out here in, in response to whatever the questions were the Corinthians asked. And you know, I'm a Bible nerd, so I think about it, and I'm like, well, I wonder what the questions were. Because Paul doesn't like, he's not like, here's question one, two, three, and four you guys asked. Now I'm going to respond to them. We don't get that. We just know they wrote something. But I could see, with, with, the, with the influences they had of, of Aphrodite's temple and the influences they had of, of Stoic thought, you know, some of them might have been asking, Paul, is it even... If we're Christ followers, should we even be having sex in marriage? That could have been one of them. And based on his response, I could, I could see that being the case. And, and Paul's beginning to give them a biblical, godly response to questions like that. Okay? <clears throat> Let's read verses 3 and 4. This is where the trouble tends to begin. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does. Now, this sometimes turns into, uh, because people aren't careful in the way they talk about it, uh, and, or it could just look like, to us, at first glance, it could look like har- just harmful obligation. If we don't filter this instruction, as we should all biblical instruction, through the law and the lens of love. So, let me not assume anything, and, and Say something, if you're going to hang around me for more than 10 minutes, you're probably going to hear this. So what, do, what, do we, what is the law of love? What do I mean? What do I mean when I say love? Well, I mean love from God's perspective, because there's lots of variant definitions out there, for sure. A lot of confusion around what that is, okay? But if I'm trying to quickly and succinctly, especially because i got other things to tell you about, define love for you, I'm going to point you to 1 John 3.16, where, where, where it shows us, this is by this we know love. By this we know love, that he... Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. The self-sacrifice we see at the cross of Christ, the selflessness, when God is trying, he's trying to help our tiny human brains conceive of the grand beauty and glory of the love of God and, and what it means and how it applies. How does he do that to help us? Well, he points us, the best visual he can give us is Christ on the cross. So that's got to be our starting point. Amen. All right, so that's, we're working off of that. There's lots more that could say about it, but I got to not, all right? What else does the Bible tell us about love? So that's kind of a broad, that's a broad principle. The, 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 the love of Christ shown forth in the cross of Christ, that gets us started. But there's places in the scripture where we, we get some more details because some of us are like, well, okay, well, yeah, what does that mean? Well, here's more of what it means in further detail. 1 Corinthians 13, what, what, is, what do we see? Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag, it's not arrogant, it does not act disgracefully, does not seek its own benefit, it's not provoked, does not keep an account of wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Okay? So that's, that's helping to shape our understanding of what the law of love should look like and then how we can take and apply it into our discussion for today. 
The application of these instructions in verses 3 and 4 must be informed by the rule that binds them all. And by that, I mean, I mean all biblical instruction, okay? And that's part of the problem. If you take what Paul instructs here, is he's specifically answering questions that the Corinthians are asking. If you take that and isolate it without letting the, the broad, like so obvious multiple times throughout the scriptures, Jesus and anybody else that wrote on the subject, they elevated this law of love to a place of prominence and showed us that it is the grid with which we have to interpret all other things. Okay, so part of where we get in trouble is when we, we lift stuff out of that broader context, okay? What am I saying? I'm saying this, let me say this another way. Imagine that these instructions, verses three and four, to married couples and how to interact with each other, imagine that it's written in code. If, that's, if that was the case, then, then the love of God is the key to decipher the code. Okay? You guys remember in National Treasure when Nick Cage needed those sweet glasses that Ben Franklin made with like the multiple lenses to see the special message on the back of the Declaration of Independence? That's what I'm trying to talk about, right? For those of you when I said code and key, you're like, what is he talking about? National Treasure, Nick Cage, man. You know Nick Cage, right? Everybody, come on. Good Lord, that's not that old. Love is them Ben Franklin glasses, man. You're not going to understand anything the Bible's teaching about anything if you don't first understand the love of God. Especially when it comes to applying these things in relation to other humans. If we miss that, we mess stuff up. And it's happened a lot around this in particular to the detriment and the pain of many people. The last part of verse 6 in 1 Corinthians that I read you is really crucial to navigating all of this. What does it say about love? It says, love rejoices with the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. There has to be open, honest communication between a husband and wife around, hey, hey, amen, somebody, yeah, come on now. Who thought today would be the day I'd get the charismatic breakout in this church that I've been praying for for 10 years? Let it be, Lord. Hey, Pastor Jordan prayed this morning. Lord, do whatever you want. We're open to whatever you want. The sex sermon is the one that gets them, man. Who's got a tambourine? Get it in here, man. I'm ready for it. I'm all the way here for it. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, man, that's good. I'm all messed up now. Where the heck am I even in these notes? <clears throat> oh, there has, to, there has to be open, honest communication between a husband and wife, period, but particularly around physical intimacy when it comes to desires, preferences, pleasure, and frequency has to be non-negotiable, or we're going to have problems. Though the Bible teaches we become one flesh and we are unified in covenant marriage, that doesn't mean we are now one person, okay? And if that's true, and it is, that means there may often be, or may not often be, a, a perfect match all the time when it comes to those things. What things? 
desires, preferences, pleasure, and frequency. There may not be a perfect match. So how do we figure that out? Do we just make assumptions and let it be weird? Or do we communicate about it really clearly, openly, and honestly because love rejoices in the truth? And I realize that sometimes there's fear that keeps that from being able to happen or it's, it's a roadblock to that. And that's, man, a major thing that I'm hoping we accomplish today in working through this is perfect love casting out fear as it pertains to physical intimacy within marriage. Because anything that's being done or not done out of fear is gonna lead to problems. Fear is not the motivator, never should be. And when it is, it's always going to cause devastation. We're a people motivated by love. So some have taken these verses to mean, right? What, verses three and four. Let me, let me read them again just so we know what we're talking about. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, okay? Some have taken those verses to mean they shouldn't talk about it. But whatever the other person wants and whenever they want it, they're commanded to just oblige them. They've thought that's what that means. And I can tell by the body posture of over half the room, you think that's what it means. So I'm going to get really real for a second. If you've used that, to manipulate your spouse into doing stuff out of fear, knock it off and don't ever do it again. Because that's tap dancing on the line if it ain't stomping all over it of emotional, spiritual abuse. Don't do it anymore. And if you're struggling with it and you don't know how to stop, that's the whole way you've operated. I I, I know the tone of my voice doesn't sound like it, but we love you and we'll help you figure out how to stop that. Don't do it anymore. Amen? To believe that, that's what it means. No one should ever talk about it. That means whatever the other person wants, whenever they want it, we just got to oblige them. No questions asked. No discussion. No communication. Right? Here's the problem. It says the, the, the wife's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to the husband. The husband's body doesn't belong to him. It belongs to the wife. Right? Everyone cool with that? It does say that, right? Okay, so wouldn't that, also, wouldn't that also transfer to, instead of it just being, that means I can basically try to scripturally manipulate and force you into whatever I want to do. The assumption is then both bodies are still involved. So if my wife has authority over my body, that in the jurisdiction of that is what I'm doing with my body to her body. Hello? I mean, it doesn't seem that complicated, but I guess it is. I know I'm tipping over some sacred cows. And I know I'm messing, I'm getting all up in your business. But we got to, man. We ha- Look, whatever, whatever, whatever you're afraid is going to be taken from you by what I'm saying right now, I promise you the Lord has something better than that. If that's where you're at, if that's where some of the body posture I can see in the room, if that's what it's about, maybe you're just shocked because you've never heard anybody talk about it like this. And that's fine. The point of this is not to shock anybody. If I wanted to shock people, I would have, 
I would have gone way more into details and stuff as, as I've seen done before just to, you know, because when that hits the internet, it's like, whoa, he's talking about crazy stuff, right? That's, that's not what we're doing here. Trying to address specifically some of the concerns I heard come out of this body. And I just want you to know, the person that asked me the question, any conversations that I've had, those people have never shared names about who the conversations are that they're with. I don't know. I didn't press for it. I don't care. I'm just glad people are talking to each other that are believers and trying to help each other biblically see their way through this. I'm stoked on that. I'm thankful somebody had the guts to bring it to me. Say, hey man, people are talking about this. I think they need help. Awesome. Thank you. They deserve a blue bravery ribbon for sure. Because that can be weird. Hey, pastor, (laughs) what about this stuff? You know, like if you don't know or you haven't been here when I've tried to, you know, fall all over myself to say this isn't weird. It's not taboo. It doesn't need to be. The Bible talks about it. You know what I mean? There can be a barrier there. So hopefully those are getting kicked over today. Or at least we're chipping at them. Okay. But to operate like that, it totally ignores everything the Bible teaches about the self-sacrificial nature of love. To operate like that means whenever, wherever, obligation-based or fear-based compliance around sexual intimacy completely ignores everything the Bible teaches about what self-sacrificial love looks like, which absolutely has to be the way we decipher the instructions Paul gives us here about these particulars. You with me on that? Everyone got your Ben Franklin Law of Love glasses on? All right, flip the next color down because we got to keep going, okay? How many people are going to need to leave here and go watch National Treasure to know what the heck I'm talking about? So my wife's going to do it because she's like, all right, that movie's sweet. I want to see it. We'll watch it later, Ben. (laughs) If, If you have not seen National Treasure, I've leaned heavy into this analogy. So your homework is you and Nick Cage hang out later. Pop some poppity corn and, and find, you know, find the Declaration of Independence, you know, behind Mount Rushmore or whatever the heck's happening. That might be the second one. I can't remember. Details are blurry. All right. <clears throat> what does that mean? What I'm saying, no spouse should ever feel nervous to speak up about needs, concerns, or preferences when it comes to sex in marriage. No spouse should ever feel nervous about that because two spouses who are self-sacrificially loving each other in the model of Christ, they should be asking each other openly about these things and often. It shouldn't be weird. It, sh- it, sh- it has to be an open dialogue. And if it hasn't been that way, don't get into condemnation about it because I realize it's, it's not very common that you hear biblical teaching around these things because some, for a lot of people it does feel weird. So I understand that. Don't get in condemnation about it, but let's address it. Let's look at the truth that God's showing us here today. Let's let the law of love rule the way we navigate these things and and grow and heal, okay? Now, verse 5 has often had some extra implication read into it that we need to discuss, okay? This is real, 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 real important. Verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay? I'm saying there's extra implication read into this and I'm going to show you that I believe in two ways. The first is, this is often taught, basically like what it's talking about 
is, is fasting sexual intimacy for the purpose of prayer, right? And if you're like, if you're a new Christian, like what's fasting? Well, it's denying the flesh in some way in, in hopes that in denying the flesh and quieting the desires of, of the flesh, because though we are justified in Christ and made new creations, we still deal with a remnant of our old selves. And, and there's Romans 7, there's still there's an internal battle. There's a process of sanctification happening. We're over time, hopefully being conformed more and more into the image of Christ and, and winning those battles with, with lust and, and sin uh, and temptation. But, you know, so our, our, our flesh is an issue. And that's, so what people have read here is, basically what it's saying is, that's the, what it's talking about is the, the practice of kind of fasting sexual intimacy for the purpose of, of prayer. And <clears throat> look, man, I don't, you know, I don't know. I didn't have time to look and like pull all of the theologians, you know, from Augustine forward or whatever, but sure, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's in there. But here, let me just say this. That doesn't seem to me to be the main point. That doesn't seem to me to be the main point of what's being said there. Why? Because I don't see anywhere else in the scripture at all that teaches you can't have a vibrant, passionate prayer life and sex life at the same time. Find me that teaching. It's nowhere. As a matter of fact, if you're in covenant union with a spouse, I think things being healthy around sexual intimacy uh, has a lot to do with and is helpful for continuing that mission of, of pushing, pushing each other towards Christ because of some of the more detailed purposes of why God gave sex as a gift for connection and vulnerability. And as an expression, a really, really <clears throat> special expression of self-sacrificial love. It's not just physical pleasure. That's a lot of the culture's problem. They overemphasize sex in one way, thinking it's as important as God, but they, they underemphasize it in another way, thinking it's simply a physical act. We know it's more than that because the Bible tells us it is. God has more purpose for it than that, okay? <clears throat> Thought somebody could have said amen that at least, but they didn't. So it, it seems... I, the main point, I think, it seems to him that he's saying if there is strife or division or any type of life or marital struggle getting in the way of a husband and wife serving one another and enjoying the connection and pleasure and vulnerability that God intends for sex to provide, if that's happening, if there's anything getting in the way of that, they should agree for a time to pray seriously about that communicating with each other and the Lord on how to get those barriers out of the way so that they can come together again. The whole flow of thought is not about fasting. The flow of thought is about sexual intimacy within marriage and Paul answering questions about it. Okay? You know, do that what you will. If, if you and your spouse want to do a sex fast, more power to you. Amen. Maybe that's, you know, maybe that's in there to some degree, but it sure doesn't seem to be the main point. <clears throat> then Paul gives the reason for the urgency, okay? This is, what's, this is where we really got to drill down. It's real important. What, what is the reason? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The reason why Paul's saying, 
Don't deprive each other. Okay? And, and if that's happening, if, if there's an issue, man, get intentional. Get in prayer about it together. Okay? Because what it does is it leaves room for Satan to come in and to further cause issues. Now, here's where we, here's where we run into a problem. A, a widespread problem. Some have taken this to its next logical step, though it's not spelled out in the text. Okay, and I understand why people have, and I also understand why lots of people have because it's been, it's been taught this way widely and, and just, just said as if that's what the text is saying and, and, and the implications that they're drawing, that they're reading into the text, that that's, well, it's just, that's just plain fact. Well, I don't think so. The next logical step, right, if what he's talking about is don't deprive each other, except you've agreed for a time, purpose of prayer, come back together quickly, right? Come back together quickly so that you don't leave room for Satan to come in. The next, so people are like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean if Satan's tempting them and they're married and we're, we're understanding that the, the, the connection and vulnerability and, and the pleasure of sex within the marital covenantal union, that's, that's important. Well, what's going to happen if, if we don't do that? And people, the next logical step is they're like, oh, well, the temptation means adultery. It doesn't say that in the text. It just says Satan will tempt you. But let's grant that, yes, the next logical step, is what, what, what does sexual temptation look like within the context of a, a covenant marriage? Temptation towards adultery, okay? And, and here's the thing. Though that is a practical potential, clearly, we have to be very careful if it happens not to lay blame on the victim. Very careful not to do that. Because you'll hear, I've heard people teach it, you'll hear people say it, well, an infidelity happens. Well, if, if you would have done what verse 3 and 4 talks about, that wouldn't have happened. Or, if, or even before, sometimes it hasn't even happened. But somebody in instructing somebody else or trying to, to share truth with somebody else will say, well, if you don't do what 3 and 4 talks about, verses 3 and 4 talks about, well, then... They may cheat on you. No, what does it say? Satan tempts because of what? So Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Your lack of self-control. So what does that mean? That means if in the tragic case that somebody does get clawed up by Satan, tripped up into or, or willfully goes out and commits infidelity against their marriage covenant... Nobody ever, ever should be going to the person that had that committed against them and saying, well, if you would have done this or that, maybe that wouldn't have happened. No, no, no. The issue is not what they did or didn't do. The issue is the lack of self-control of somebody that made a covenant and then violated it. Period. And is, is part of what Paul's teaching, he starts out, he's, because, of, because of immoralities, we should... We should get hooked up in covenant marriages and have sex with each other. I'm just, that's just plainly what he's saying, is it not? Yes. So the idea of temptation and the reality of that is in view, 100%. Let's, let's, not, be, let's, let's not be naive about that. And, but what this should not look like is husbands or wives, spouses, trying to perform sexually for their spouse out of fear that they're going to go cheat on them if they don't. That's a busted motive. And you, as the spouse on the other side of that, should be devastated to ever find out that's anywhere in the mix of what's going on. 
and do everything you can to gently love and assure your spouse that you don't want them to live like that. The motivation for this deep connection, this vulnerability that we have in sexual intimacy, it should be love and selflessness, not fear. I've heard this idea, let me finish this. So I meant everything I said. The other side of the coin is, there is, Paul is saying here, out of love and service and care for our spouse, we should understand the reality of sexual temptation and as, as an act of service and love, look to be heading that off for and helping our spouse with that. But, but taking that teaching that Paul's giving and turning it all the way to a person that has infidelity committed against them is responsible for the infidelity, like, no. That's an overrealization of the principle read into the text. And I know a bunch of you have had pastors say just, they've said it explicitly, they've said it implicitly. You've had people tell you that and you've believed that. And I'm telling you it's wrong. Paul said, so that Satan won't tempt you because of what? Because your spouse didn't do the right things? Your spouse didn't do enough things? No, Satan doesn't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Amen. That's where the buck stops. Ephesians talks about people being caught up in sin and us as the church going to great lengths to restore them, be gentle with them. I'm not... For those that have walked through the fires of infidelity and adultery and, and come out the other side, please don't leave here today feeling condemned. That's one of the... It, there, there's, a, there's a precious gospel reflection when people can come through difficulties that deep. But it's hard. <laughs> and it's not the person's fault that had the sin committed against them. If you're struggling with intimacy in your marriage... First of all, make sure your spouse knows. Devote devote yourself to prayer, and if needed, bring in elders or other trusted leaders or counselors, if needed, and treat it as urgent. That's one big message I want you to hear today. If any part of this is resonating, make sure your spouse knows. (laughs) Devote yourselves to prayer. Treat it urgently between yourselves. Address it. Lean into it. And if you need help, reach for it. Please. Don't just let this stuff lie around and think it's going to solve itself. Paul taught clearly, don't, <laughs> this, is, this is a big deal, okay? It's not just Paul, but that's where we're at. <clears throat> uh, there may be serious relational issues that need to be addressed. There might be health issues. There might be life season issues. And I want you to hear this. Every married couple I've ever known including Natalie and I, have had to work through these things in different ways at different times. Every single one I've ever known. Rarely. I mean, and if, if you're like, well, Pastor Vince, you haven't talked to me about my sex life yet because me and my spouse are the unicorns that always exactly want to have sex at the same time, in the same way, in the same lighting. Okay, man. <laughs> awesome. Like, you teach the next one. But I'm just telling you, I've been doing this a while, talked to lots of married people, and I just understand how humans work, and you're not a clone of your spouse, and nor should the goal ever be for you to try to force your spouse to be a clone of you. 
Amen. Some of the give and take and and the service and sacrifice in this most intimate and, and vulnerable area of our life, man, imagine the potential for growth as followers of Christ to have to bend and sway as an act of love in this. Because it, man, it's getting, it's touching nerves, right? What we can't do is make assumptions or just ignore the issues because Satan will sow bitterness, resentment, and all other kinds of bitter poisons into your heart in marriage. Because Satan wants to destroy as many marriages as he can. Period. That for sure. That's a goal of the forces of darkness. Now, quickly, I want to address another specific question that came up inside of this question. Um, and I'm, I'm moving quick, I promise. We're, we're, coming, we're coming close to the end here. <clears throat> I underst- because I understand this can be tricky to navigate, okay? Uh, there was news recently, John Piper came out with comments about this, so <sighs> people are talking about it. Uh, and people are struggling with what's right and wrong or how to navigate. So the, the question inside the question, this may be subheading, it has to do with role-playing and whether that's acceptable, okay? So... Quickly, we're not going to get weird here, but the law of love speaks to this as well. The law of love speaks to this as well. Pretty simply, if the point of role-playing is so that you can actually pretend or fantasize that you're having sex with someone else besides your spouse, this violates covenant and the singular commitment to love and devotion that husband and wife are supposed to have for each other. If the purpose of it is to pretend or fantasize, you're actually having sex with someone else. You're basically using your spouse's body. That's not, that's, Jesus taught us in Matthew 5 that lusting after someone who's not your spouse is adultery of the heart. And doing that in your imagination and using your spouse's body to carry it out, it's sinful and it's unloving to them. Okay? Now, I'm... I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm just trying to make a point. But if a husband and wife agree, man, you know, they want to throw on some pointy ears and pretend they're elves from Middle Earth or whatever, but it's still them, okay? I'm trying to think of the least weird example. (laughs) Help me, Lord. But it's still you, okay? Or whatever your thing is, I'm not giving you any more examples. <laughs> as, long, as long as both spouses feel safe, loved, and respected, there is not any biblical prohibition against such things, okay? Husbands and wives are free to explore the gift of sexuality within their covenant as long as it is bound by self-sacrificial care and preference to one another. This means, this means if you have a conversation and your spouse is uncomfortable with something, you slow your roll, you don't be pushy or manipulative. Period. But this also means your spouse desires something, you don't just dismiss it automatically or use these principles to insist on your own way all the time. Love does not insist on its own way. Amen. That would also be manipulative. This leads us to the last point about the source of desire and our standard of beauty. 
promise we're almost done. I know this is running long, but guys, this is <laughs> a lot, okay? If, if you are the one expressing a desire to your spouse and you find that they are often feeling uncomfortable with your suggestions, it is wise to assess where those desires are coming from. If that's a wall you keep hitting, then, then there needs to be some introspection because if you've, be, if you've ever been caught in the jaws of the porn trap, you may have desires shaped by unrealistic depictions of sexual acts that are not between two people who love, respect, and care for each other. That can taint the way you see this. If you've had sinful sexual relationships in the past where certain acts were done, it may have been selfish gratification and not the self-sacrificial nature of covenant love that was shaping those acts. And so what I'm saying is, it may be proper, if this is the situation you find yourself in, to assess the root of your desires and understand that some of your desires may not be based in the reality of what self-sacrificial covenantal love would ask for. And in particular, at the end of the day, it comes down to you and your spouse. You and your spouse have the freedom to work through these things together, to be bound by conscience and by the law of love. Amen. We must also remember that covenant love determines our standard of beauty. This ties in because I was mentioning porn, other relationships. We need to think about this. Covenant love determines our standard of beauty. Hang with me. There's stuff in here so far I know some of you haven't liked. A lot of you are going to not like this, but here we go. Once you marry, that person should now be the benchmark for you of what is beautiful. And that may change over time. So what do I mean? Well, I mean, for me, if Natalie wears her, straight, her hair straight, then guess what? I like straight hair. If Natalie wears her hair curly, guess what? I like curly hair. If my wife likes to wear makeup, hallelujah. Let's go to Aveda or wherever they sell that. <laughs> if my wife wants to leave that pretty face all natural, I'm, in the, I'm real into that. She needs to be my standard of beauty. She should be the benchmark of beauty. That's my covenant partner. My eyes should be for her alone. Now, is, is what I'm trying to say that you're going to not now notice other sources of beauty out in the world? No, that's not what I'm saying. That would be unreasonable. But my benchmark for what is beautiful is my bride. And she needs to think I'm a hunk. Now, some of you might be going, well, I don't like that. Give me a verse. Okay, Proverbs 5. <laughs> Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. This starts in verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Like a loving doe and a graceful mountain goat, let her breast satis satisfy you at all times. At all times, be exhilarated always with her love. Your spouse is your standard of beauty. Now let me explain how this works. This is a love-motivated choice that we make to discipline our mind and our eyes 
to see our spouse as our own personal definition of what floats our boat, turns our crank, you know, you know what I'm saying? That's it. It's a, pers- it's a choice. It's a love-motivated choice. You might, and you might be thinking, and I understand, I get it. You might be thinking, dude, that's crazy. That's impossible. What you're asking for is unreasonable. But let me, let me say, it's not impossible, but it is supernatural. It's a choice we make, but it's not something we can accomplish in our strength alone. We will need the Lord's help to walk this truth out. It starts with acknowledging that the Bible teaches this principle to be true and a desire being cultivated in your heart for that to be the case. Do you see the wisdom and the beauty of seeing your spouse as the benchmark of what you would define as beautiful? Do you see how that could have really practical, helpful application to all that we've been talking about? That's because whatever God encourages us toward always has helpful, practical application, even if we struggle to figure out how, okay? It is supernatural. We're going to need the Lord's help to walk it out. And it's actually part of us reflecting the light and love and character of God to our spouse and to the world. What do I mean by that? Well, friends, we need to remember that in order to save us, God had to see us and has to see us as perfect even when we're not. He chose, instead of focusing on our blemishes and imperfections, instead of focusing on that and treating us accordingly, he chose instead to love us and make us perfect and blemish-free through faith in the finished work of Christ. Romans 4 says Christ died for the ungodly. Wretched though we are on our own, God declared And and God decided to see us as precious and worthy of saving. We are not perfect yet, but he is committed to us as we are made more and more beautiful like him. I don't know if you've thought of this before, but this would be real good. Put it in your list of summary points. God doesn't love us because we're beautiful. We were made beautiful because he's loving us. There's a paradigm shifter with a lot of real practical application to the way you deal with your spouse. You see, friends, there is so much more we could say. There's so many more examples of particular ways that sin can corrupt the good gift of sex within covenant marriage. But if we keep our hearts and minds focused on the love of God, shown forth most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if we will do that, if we'll let that be our, our Ben Franklin reading glasses, there, then there is no conflict between us and there is no scheme of Satan that can keep us from the joys our Father intends us to have within the benevolent boundaries of covenant marriage as it pertains to sex and sexuality. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you that you don't feel awkward about talking through real things. Thank you that your word addresses real topics and the real struggles that we're going through as humans. God, I thank you for this church and I thank you for the evidence I can see of people leaning on one another and and searching for and trying to understand 
how to navigate sometimes very complicated waters by the truth of your word. I pray for every single marriage at Love City Church. God, I ask that wherever they are in terms of of health and joy in these things, I pray, I ask, Lord, for you to bless them and to continue the growth. Whether they're just starting out and struggling to figure these things out or or there's been issues or there are issues or, or they're in a fairly healthy place, God, please don't ever let us be so foolish as to think we can rest back on our laurels. We can always be more enamored with the example of love you have shown us in Christ. We can always be transformed to a further degree, being made more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, the Son. We can always grow in our ability to love and find new ways to lay our lives down in self-sacrificial service for one another to the glory of your name and to the good of one another. So Lord, please help us in these things. Help us desire these things first and then walk them out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.